0: This is Saving Grace, living in light of God's love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace.
1: Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. A favorite Christian hymn of mine is titled, Holy, Holy, Holy. One line declares, Only thou art holy. There's none beside thee, perfect in power and love and purity. Oh, how we know that is true of our Lord. But what about our personal holiness? In 1 Peter 1, 16, God commands us, Be holy because I am holy. If we are to reflect God's glory, we must conform to His character, which is holy. But how do we do that? As we continue our series on A Life of Glory, Mark Ray will help us in our pursuit of holiness. Mark is Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and has a substantial history with Grace School of Theology, including being an original Board of trustee member, and primary advisor from his earliest days. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Mark will soon be launching the Grace Center for Spiritual Development, which we'll tell you more about in the weeks to come. But let's listen now to Mark Ray as he shares insight for living holy in a life of glory.
0: Well, we started the, f- the first week of the spiritual life with this statement about manifesting the glory of God. Out of 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do it in such a way that you manifest his character to the world to his creation, that that's what we were created to do. The question of the morning is, how do we do that? And the answer to that is, in order to manifest his character, we have to conform to his character. I made a little reference last week to a friend of mine who went out and glorified Pele, that great soccer player, by playing like him or seemingly thinking he was playing like him as a 12-year-old. But the interesting thing is, you can't glorify somebody unless he couldn't glorify him unless he could actually play soccer, right? So in this particular case, we can't actually glorify God, manifest His character, unless we conform to His character. So this morning, we want to look at the essence of the character of God. And there's no better place to do that than Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to place yourself in the position of Isaiah, this incredible prophet who has come to pay his respects to the dead king Uzziah. And I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. I'm going to read these seven verses, and I just want you to place yourself in the midst of you are Isaiah walking in to the temple. This is Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. It's just an unbelievable statement that we get with Isaiah here. And I want to unfold a little bit of it for you. This is Isaiah, who was a court-appointed prophet. He was appointed by King Uzziah. He was a court-appointed... Court-appointed prophet. Uzziah had been king for 17 years. And under him, Isaiah had his status as a prophet. He had his wealth. He had his income. He had his food. He had a roof over his head. So when Uzziah dies, Isaiah loses everything. And Isaiah is coming to this beloved king. He walks in expecting to pay homage to this king. And God gives him a vision. And it's an unbelievable vision. He sees the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up. What was the one thing that Isaiah needed to see at the moment when he walked into that temple? When he had lost everything, what he needs to see is that God's in control. God's right where he should be, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, in control of it all. God hasn't forgotten a single thing. And then the next statement says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now the temple was typically a space bigger than this. And you have been to a wedding before where you've seen the train of a bride's, that train that... that Travels behind the bride as she comes in. I've even seen a 10 foot long train. But this is the train of a robe that filled a building bigger than this. Just the train of his robe. Now let me give you a little fun fact. In Hebrew, that statement, the train of his robe, has a Greek equivalent in the New Testament. The Greek equivalent is this, the hem of his garment. And the hem of his garment is attached to Jesus when we hear of the hemorrhaging woman who reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, right? And what happens to her when she touches the hem of his garment? She's healed, right? The train of his robe, what Isaiah needs to see is not only that God is in his place, in his rightful place, on his throne in control of it all, but that he can make good He can redeem everything that's been lost. He can heal all that has been lost. And so what we get is we get this beautiful picture of that healing going forward with Christ, who is the redeemer of all, who will ultimately go to the cross to redeem you and me back into this relationship with the God of the universe. And so we get the train of his robe. What Isaiah needs to see is not only is is God in his rightful place, but he can redeem everything that's been lost. He can heal everything that's been lost. And then we get this really strange vision of these angelic beings circling the head of God. Now, these angelic beings have six wings, right? And there's been a tremendous amount of scholarship over what those six wings mean. I'm going to give you the very simple Mark Ray paraphrase. With two, the angels flew, right? Well, that's what God created them to do, was to fly. So it makes sense that two wings help the angel fly, right? With two of them, they fly. With two of them, they cover their eyes because who have they come in touch with? Who are they looking at? The Holy One. And we see all throughout Scripture that you can't look upon God. Moses couldn't look upon God. And so we get these angels, these angelic beings that cover their eyes because they're looking at a holy God. And with two wings, they cover their feet because where are they? They're on holy ground. So what we get is this incredible picture of these angelic beings flying around covering themselves, the ground and their eyes, because they are in the presence of the Holy One. And then they make potentially... The first praise chorus ever known to Scripture because they sing this chorus over and over and over. I I had a friend of mine who once said, I really dislike praise choruses because we just sing the same thing over and over and over again. It's not like the old hymns that they had some depth in me. Well, guess what? The angels are sitting here singing the same praise chorus over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We looked at this last week. The entire earth is overflowing with God's glory. Can you imagine that sight and how terrified you will be, especially when these angelic beings start singing that and the doorposts shake and the place fills with smoke? Now, if you're Isaiah, man, what an unbelievable picture. But let me take you back to verse 3. Because there's one thing that these angels repeat, holy, 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 and there's no other place in Scripture except Revelation chapter 4 where the same statement is repeated. There's no other place in Scripture where three words are used one right after the other to describe somebody. This is it, the only place, and the same thing is again repeated in Revelation chapter 4 where holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the Revelation 4 passage. This is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. Now in the Hebrew language, this word holy is the word kadosh. And the Hebrew language is not given to flowery speech. You don't see a lot of adjectives in the Hebrew language, but if they, when, the, when the Hebrew language wants to get a point across, it repeats it. And this is one of the only places in all of scripture you see something repeated three times immediately one after the other. So The writer here is really trying to get this point across. Isaiah is really trying to tell us something. In fact, the angelic beings are trying to tell us something. That God is holy. The word kadosh. The rabbis will tell you this. That the word kadosh, the opposite of the word kadosh, is the word common. Which means that if something is holy, if something is kadosh, it is uncommon. It's beyond the common. It's actually set apart, different, unique, perfect. And so the first word that's used here, this first holy that's used of a holy God, says that God is set apart. There's none like him. He is absolutely set apart, unique. There's none created. There's none in his creation that is like him. In fact, God says that of himself. And so this first holy says that God is unique. He is set apart. But the angelic beings, these seraphim, go on and they say he is not only holy, but he's holy, holy. Holy. The second holy, literally translated, means that he is kadosh kadosh. He is set apart of the set apart. He is holier than holy, if there could ever be that. But God is it. He is holier than holy. He is more unique than anything in the world. In fact, Isaiah will go on to call him the holy God of Israel 23 times in the book, in the book of Isaiah. 23 times he's called the holy God. set apart, but now he is set apart of the set apart. The unique of the unique. The holier of the holy. But they don't stop there. They go to a third one. And they call him Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy. He is the holiest of the holier of the holy. He is the set apart, the most set apart of the set apart of the set apart. If there was one thing that defined the absolute essence of God, it is this word, that he is absolutely holy. He is the holiest of the holier of the holy. When you go and look at a diamond in a, in a jewelry store, when they take that diamond out, what do they set it on? Do they set it on a piece of glass? Do they set it on a piece of white paper? What do they set it on? Black felt. It's jeweler's cloth. When they set it on the black felt, the reason they do that is so that by contrast, you can see the absolute brilliance. You can see the essence of that diamond, the flawlessness of that diamond. What we're seeing here is the angelic being saying, by contrast to everything else, everything common, God is set on the jeweler's cloth so that you can see he is holy, holy, holy. You can see the essence of who he is, the flawless nature of who he is. So in his essence, his character, that defines it. It's the only place besides Revelation that it's ever used and ever stated that he is holy, the holiest of the holier of the holy. It defines him. But second, it's also the existence of his character. Look at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In his existence alone, there's nobody else that compares to him. He exists within everything he created, within harmony in everything he created, to the point that even the created beings cry out who he is. But he's also existing apart from anything that is not holy. We see in verse 5, Isaiah says, So when I saw him, when I heard all of this, by contrast, I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Because I have seen the king. Not Uzziah, but I have seen the king, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In his existence alone, Habakkuk says, he can't look upon evil. In his existence alone, he exists in harmony With everything holy, but he exists apart from everything that is unholy. And so in his essence, he is holy. And in his existence, he surrounded himself with everything that is perfect and pure and set apart for him. But it's also the energy behind what makes him act. Look at again what Isaiah does. He immediately says that sin is there. I'm a a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And immediately God goes into action because in order for Isaiah to be in his midst, he has to be holy. So he takes one of those seraphim, he goes and takes a coal out of the fire with tongs and places it on his lips and purges the sin out of Isaiah so he can be in his presence. Because you see, holiness is also that energy that drives God to stay holy, to keep the unholy away from him. It is what moves him, it is, it is that energy behind him. So this, this is what defines him. This is the foundation of who God is. I've told you before that I played basketball in high school. Some of you have said, sure. Well, let me just show you. Jeff, put that picture up there, would you? I'm number 15. So Vicky, wherever you are, you can now say, that doesn't look like you at all. That's me number 15. That's my high school senior year basketball team. We, it looks a little bit different than it does today. But that's, that was my basketball team. And you see the guy in the white shirt? That was my coach. His name is Don Coleman. Don Coleman is a legend in Texas high school boys basketball, and he's a legend for this. He still holds the record for the most consecutive district wins in Texas high school boys basketball. For 10 straight years, his teams never lost a district game. 81 straight district wins, never lost a district game, 81 of them. And Don Coleman did it This way, And you learned to be part of a Don Coleman team because the minute you came on the campus from the moment you were a freshman and entered the basketball program to the last day of your last practice as a senior, he drilled into us fundamentals, the fundamentals of shooting free throws, the fundamentals of passing, the fundamentals of dribbling, the fundamentals of how to play man to man defense, all of the fundamentals that you had to learn. We practiced it every single day. In fact, I have a good friend of mine who played on. You, you may remember the University of Houston when Akeem Elijahon played and Clyde Drexler played. They were called Phi Fi, Fi Jamma You remember that? Well, this guy played several years after me on a Don Coleman team, and his claim to fame was he played with those guys. And when they played against Louisville in the semifinals for the NCAA championship, he sunk 10 free throws in a row. Off the bench, 10 free throws in a row. And I remember the commentator to this day saying, that is a Don Coleman player. So even his legacy went beyond that. But Don Coleman not only taught us fundamentals, Don Coleman was a little bit of a visionary because he, he brought to bear a strength and conditioning program long before you ever thought about doing that. Back in the early 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, he brought strength conditioning and strength training. You see, the, the old adage was that a basketball player had to have long, lean muscles. Well, you look at them today and they're... I mean, they're... They're built. These basketball players have muscles on them, not kind of like the picture of me. But these guys, he brought that whole strength and conditioning in. As a matter of fact, we hated that portion of our basketball years. When you became a part of the varsity, which I did as a sophomore, when you became part of the varsity, he forced us. That's a wrong way to put it. We had the privilege (laughs) of wearing ankle weights every day. Every single day, we had to wear ankle weights to school, during school, and in some cases during practice. Now, ankle weights are these little weights that you wrapped around your ankles. They were full of buckshot, basically, and they weighed about two and a half pounds each. You you never like to see those, so I wore desert, you remember desert boots? Okay, I wore desert boots, and I tucked my ankle weights inside my desert boots, which meant you couldn't see them, but you knew I was a Don Coleman basketball player because I walked like this. And so you could tell all across our campus when basketball players would see hey, how you doing? Oh, hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. We looked like we were kicking each other because the momentum of those ankle weights moved us. But that conditioned us. That strengthened us. And I will tell you every single day that I wore ankle weights, and I hated every minute of it. But it made me remember to eat, think, sleep, drink. In my dreams was basketball because this guy... Set in place the fundamentals and put it in our hearts and our minds to think about basketball all day long. That's why Don Coleman teams won as much as they did. Our God is inherently holy. Our God thinks about it, feels it, says it, does it, wills it. It is, it is ingrained in who he it is, the essence of who he is. And out of that, we also have been designed to be holy. So first, it's the foundation of his character, but second, it is the force behind his creation. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the what? To the saints, the holy ones, the ones who have been set apart because they are in Christ. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let me stop there for just a minute. We may begin to wonder if I'm to manifest the character of God. In order to manifest the character of God, I have to conform to the character of God and that character is holy. How many of you felt holy today in what you said, in what you did, in what you thought? How many of you felt holy Good. I didn't either. And in that not feeling holy, you have to begin to wonder, how can I feel holy? How can I be holy when I don't feel like I am? Well, it starts here. First of all, we have been blessed by God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, that by faith, in Christ, what has been imputed to us, what has been given to us, the holiness of Christ... Did we earn it? Did we pay for it? Can we get it? No. And we're going to learn about this when we get to grace. The fullness of grace is that not only are we holy in Christ, not only has that been imputed to us or credited to us because of our belief, because of our faith in Christ, but also, as we're going to learn here a little bit later, he's going to call us to live like who we are. He's going to call us to live like holy ones. And that's why Paul calls us saints, He calls those who believe in Jesus Christ saints, those who have been set apart because of their faith in Christ. So the first thing he says is, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Guess what? You've been blessed with holiness. You've been blessed with the holiness that comes from faith in Christ. It's also what he designed into us. Look at verse 4. Just as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. He designed into us. Before the foundation of the world, he designed into you and me that we should be set apart for him, that we should be holy. God designed that directly into us before the foundation of the world. He put that standard out there, and he designed that standard into his creation. And guess what? He never lowers that standard. And you know what's great about him never lowering that standard? The standard always remains perfection. If God lowered that standard, would he still be God? No. He wouldn't be the perfect holy, holy, holy. So he keeps the standard up here, but what he does for you and me is he brings in Christ and his holiness up in us so that we meet that standard by virtue of Jesus Christ. So it is the standard, and what God did is he built into the, the structure of how he created everything. He built holiness into that structure. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, holiness is the architectural plan upon which God builds up his living temple. So it's his design for his creation, but it's also his desire for his creation. I love this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love his desire for us, not just his design for us, but his desire for us is to be holy and blameless because guess what friends, that's where there's life when we are obedient to him and walk in the holiness that we were designed to walk in. That's where there's life. The life is not in the disobedience. The life is in the obedience. The life is in looking at Christ and his holiness in us and living to that standard. That's where there's life. And so his desire for us is to be holy and blameless, set apart for him. And that holiness is the catalyst for him to redeem us. Listen to Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27. Paul, continuing in this, in this letter, he says this, that he, Christ, might sanctify, make holy And cleanse her, the church, with the washing of the water by the word, verse 27, that he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, one displaying the character of God, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What God's desire for us in the church is to exhibit that holiness. What he desires for us individually is to exhibit the holiness that we have because of Jesus Christ. Let me take you back to Don Coleman again. What earmarked the Don Coleman team was defense. He taught us man-to-man defense. Now, man-to-man defense means that you found a guy on the other team, you matched up with him, and that was your guy, and you guarded him like there was no tomorrow. We were junkyard dogs, I will tell you. He taught us to be scrappers. In fact, we were forced, excuse me, we were privileged enough to wear knee pads. And the reason we wore knee pads is he wanted us on the floor grabbing every loose ball we could. In fact, we used to do drills where he'd roll a ball down the court. We'd have to run after it and dive for it and wrestle it away from the other guy. The possession of that ball was everything to my coach. And he taught us man-to-man defense, smothering, tenacious defense from one end of the court to the other. It was not uncommon in a game that we would put a full court press on man-to-man from one end of the court to the other for the entire game meaning our guy never got out of our sight. In fact, my junior year, we played our arch rival. And our arch rival school at this particular year, they were bigger, faster, stronger than we were, but we beat our arch rival school. And the score, the final score was 26 to 24. But they knew that they had been in a dogfight. And what that means is we played eight-minute four, eight-minute quarters. It means that our opposing team scored three baskets. Every eight minutes, they only got off. Three baskets, only made three baskets. That's how tenacious our defense was. And we were known, a Don Coleman team was known by that, that tenacious man-to-man defense, and nobody was better at it than us. That was the standard that he set for us. The standard that God sets is a holy standard, and it should be our standard, right? We should be pursuing that holiness. So it's not only the foundation, but it's the force behind what God does, moving us, striving us for that holiness. But it's a third thing, and it is the fact of what we've been called to do and called to be. This is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, and listen to what he says here. Peter says this, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. The fact of God's call on us is this, that we are called to be holy. Why? Because we belong to a holy God. The beautiful thing about what God does for us, though, in that call is that he provides everything we need to be able to live that way, including forgiveness when we blow it, right? God not only provides us with every spiritual blessing, He not only provides us with all of that, and as we're going to see through the course of the spiritual life, when things like sin keep us from that, He provides the answer for that too. Because what God does is He doesn't call us to something that's unattainable. He calls us to something and then provides every single thing we need to be able to walk where He asks us to walk. He's created us for it. He's designed us for it. He's asking us to walk in it, and He's called us to that by command. Be holy, for I am holy. In fact, what He says is, He called you, and the one who called you is holy, and he called you to be holy in all your conduct, to be separate, to be set apart, to be modeling his son, Jesus Christ. And the way we do that is we look at the one who gives us that holiness, who imputed that holiness by faith in him, the work he did, we have that holiness resident in us. Amen? So what we get is this command to be holy. As John Brown once said, holiness consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. So to conform to that character means to be holy as he is holy. It's not only a command, but it's a call. As he did with Isaiah, that call is to purge. We see it in Romans 12 where he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we present ourselves back to him as this holy offering to him. And then we're to pursue holiness. Hebrews 12 tells us that we pursue holiness to glorify God, that we pursue him. And out of that, we see that holiness come to bear and we begin to live like who we are in Christ. Holiness becomes forefront in our thoughts. It becomes the ankle weights around our ankle, the thing that makes me think about Christ every day because I am already holy in him. One more time, let me take you back to my coach. When I graduated as a senior, we as a senior team gave him a Bible. And I had the, the blessing, he's, he's in his 80s now and um, struggling a little bit with his health. I had the, the rare privilege and pleasure and about two years ago to be able to see him again. And his wife told me this, that that Bible meant so much to him that he still, that is his Bible that he carries today. In 1975, we presented that Bible to him. That Bible is now worn and used and marked up, but it's the Bible that he carries today. And I got a chance to talk with him a couple of years ago, and and I asked him what was it that he ultimately wanted out of his players, and why did he stay in coaching so long? He said, it was always my desire that my coaching would inspire my players to play up to the potential I knew they had. Why I coached was I desired my players to respond to my coaching in such a way that they would play up to the potential of who I knew they were. What God says to us by be holy for I am holy is that his desire is for us to live like who we are in Christ so that the world will see us and we can manifest his character and do what we were created to do, to glorify him. And it starts with living up to who we already are in Christ. Holy saints set apart for his purpose. What's my response? Friends, I would say my response is this and I would hope it's your response and that is the same response that we saw in the seraphim circling the head of God. And it's this. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Amen.
1: You have been listening to Mark Ray. It is always our prayer that our topics will stir your interest to get into God's Word and to grow in your knowledge and your love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, if you haven't done so, we encourage you to check out the many books and devotionals available at our website gsot.edu. All are meant to expand your biblical knowledge, deepen your faith, and to apply your newly gained knowledge to your daily lives. Not a reader? Check out our Archive of Saving Grace podcast. You may have friends and family who need to hear about God's amazing grace. Sharing our podcast is a perfect way to start that conversation. We're so glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost.
0: You have been listening to Saving Grace a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash grace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.